Hello and welcome to Servant's Heart Chapel. I am Pastor Daryl, and I hope today's episode is a special blessing to you. So Romans 9 is, is all about God's sovereignty in a broken world. I thought that was interesting in uh, the whom we just sang, He Loves Me. Uh, Alas, did my Savior bleed and did my Sovereign die? Sovereign is a word we don't use very often, and 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 because of that, it can it can lose its meaning. We take words for granted. We don't really think about what they mean. And it's important to understand what we mean by sovereign when getting into Romans nine. Sovereign is to be in control. In complete control of something. That is what it means to be sovereign. We say God is sovereign over all the universe. In fact, let's take a a slight detour to Isaiah chapter 45. Just to kind of, and Paul is going to be talking, in Romans, Paul is going to be talking about God's sovereignty. And it's, I think it's valuable to, to look at the passages he would have looked at, he would have known about, including uh, Isaiah, his prophecy, uh, in, in chapter 45. Beginning with the, the uh, latter part of verse 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Heaven, sprinkle from above, and let the skies shower righteousness. Let the earth open up, so that salvation will sprout, and righteousness will spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who argues with his maker, one clay pot among many. Does the clay say to the one forming it, what are you making? Or does your work say, he has no hands? How absurd is the one who says to his father, who are you fathering? Or to his mother, who are, what are you giving birth to? So there in, in, in Isaiah, Paul, or, or Isaiah is saying, uh, it, it, through Isaiah, God is saying, I am God and I am in control. It's important to, so we know what sovereign means to be sovereign. We know that God is sovereign. Nothing happens in our life, or even in all of known existence, all of creation without God allowing it to happen. It's really not surprising that this is 
uh, probably the most common complaint of those who reject God, reject religion, reject Christianity, the most common complaint I see is that God allows bad things to happen. Therefore, he must not be good. If God, uh, if God is in complete control and allows bad things to happen, isn't he at fault? That's the questions they ask in Romans 9, and we're going to discuss that. It's important to note that by the time of this letter in the Romans, the New Testament church was composed predominantly of Gentile believers. The heathens. Those who were not of Judaism. Predominantly of Gentile believers. And that Jews had begun to reject the gospel in large numbers. And Paul deals with some of their arguments in this chapter, chapter 9, he deals with it by asking four questions. And we're going to get into those four questions, but I'll list them real quick. First, talking about the, the, the problem of God's sovereignty and unbelief. Is it that God's word has failed? God said, I'm going to do something, and it doesn't happen. Therefore, maybe God's word has failed. God can't keep his promises. He's either not, an on, uh, not honest or he's not reliable. Secondly, I, or the question is asked, is God not unjust to exercise his sovereign choices. So there's a question about whether God is just or unjust. Is he right to exercise his sovereign choices? Is he right to do what he thinks is best? Third question is, well then why then does God still blame us? If God is in control and he allows bad things to happen, why does he, he and he's, he can perfectly keep it from happening, he has the means, the ability to keep bad things from happening. Why does God blame us when we do bad things if he let us do it? And fourthly, Paul asks, what shall we say then in conclusion to all of this? So he wraps everything up. Before we actually get into uh, Romans 9, I think it's important to kind of uh, go back a, a ways, uh, just for a little bit, we're not even going to turn to it, but in Exodus, you have the story of Moses and Pharaoh. And I won't go over the whole story. I assume everybody here is familiar with the story, and those listening, if you haven't, you need to turn to Exodus at the very beginning of Exodus, and begin to read and read the story of Moses and Pharaoh. It's interesting, they're, they're very much alike early on. 
They both grew up in the palace. They both had everything they would want. They both turned out to be murderers. But then there's a separation. The Bible says that Moses rejected the pleasures of sin. Moses had a heart for God. And God used Moses to to approach the Pharaoh and demand that the people of Israel who had been slaves in Egypt uh, um, demand that they be released. And the Pharaoh, the king, Pharaoh is a term for a king, refused to do it. And we're going to see that in Exodus, the Bible talks about that God used the term hardened the Pharaoh's heart. Now that word, that, that Hebrew word for harden, it'd be easy to, to, to misunderstand if you don't take time to, to, to look into it. Where heart means to strengthen it. To give it strength, to give uh, to 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 give the person a determination, whatever direction. Some would say that God made Pharaoh evil in order to show His glory. No, Pharaoh decided of his own will. God gave him the strength to do what he really wanted to do. And we're going to talk more about that. But it's a, I think it was a, it, because Paul in, in chapter 9 kind of alludes to it. And I think it's important to kind of refresh the memory. And, and so God blessed Moses. And, 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 and if the story goes, uh, God sent a number of uh, ten plagues to Egypt before Pharaoh finally released the Israelites. And then even then, he still went after them until God destroyed him in floodwaters. Talking about the sovereignty of God and the will of men and women. The free will. Let's get into this. Chapter 9, verse 1, I speak truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying with me, or testifying to me with the Holy Spirit. Well, he really makes it clear that he, he's being honest, right? He's not... He wanted to make sure they know this is sincere, this is real. I'm not just saying, I'm not getting ready to say flowery words right now that'll make you feel good. Verse, verse 2 I have intense sorrow and continual anguish, anguish in my heart. And we're going to find out why, but first off, let me point out that that sorrow and anguish he's feeling, it's deep, abiding sorrow and it's continuing. Maybe you can empathize with that kind of sorrow that Paul was feeling. 
Paul was in a really dark place. Now, why? Why was he feeling all this intense sorrow and anguish? Um, verse 3, For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. He was anguishing over people he loved who were rejecting Christ. Some people probably he's, knew, he's known his whole life since they were kids. And, and, and they're rejecting Christ as the Messiah, and it is really hurting him. Verse uh, 4, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. They have all these wonderful things that God has given them to participate in. And verse 5, the ancestors are there, and from them, by physical descent, came the Messiah, who is God over all, praise forever. Amen. So Paul is hurting. They have this wonderful uh, blessing that Israel's received, being, being part of this, this, this uh, the people who bring the Messiah to the world. And, and they rejected him. Verse 6, it's our first question, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Has God's promise failed? Why? Because God said he would bless Israel. And they would continue. So has God's word failed? No. At first sight, it would appear that God's promise to Israel had failed, and literally fallen, for He had promised to bless them. But they had forfeited that blessing through unbelief. God has kept His promise, I, which was addressed, however, to not all Israel, but to the true spiritual Israel, as we saw that. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. We're going to find out the difference there shortly. Verse 7, Neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. See, they thought since we were descendants of Abraham, we're covered. We're good. And, and that's, in, in case maybe you're struggling to see how, how it could apply to us here, why would we care about that? There are people, if I'm a church member, I'm good. If I just claim Christianity or have a Bible in my house, I'm good. Or a cross on my wall, I'm good. Verse 9, for this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but also Rebecca received a promise when she became pregnant by one man, our ancestor Isaac. 
For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told the older would serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. See, God's plan for uh, bringing salvation to the world did not involve Ishmael, but Isaac. Ishmael was a natural son of Abraham. But what was his son? He was a son of Abraham trying to figure things out on his own, right? Rather than wait for God. Was not a son of the promise. God said, Sarah is going to have a child. And it's not, and, and God's plan involved Jacob, not Esau. Esau, uh, both of them were, were very good guys, right? Jacob was a liar. Esau, selfish man, despised his birthright, the Bible says, which should have been valuable to him. He didn't care. Two men, one man repented. And God used him and made him part of the lineage. We have, and what, what we see in the Bible and what we see now, what's going on now, as we make our decisions for Christ, God is using us in his tapestry of all history, all time. His plan. And he takes those who, who he knows, those who reject him and those who won't, and, and, and puts them in positions for his glory, his plan, his benefit. But is it fair? Ask people ask, is it fair? I mentioned that Esau forfeited his birthright because of his own worldliness and lost his rightful blessing because of his brother's deceit. So we see that human responsibility is interwoven with divine sovereignty in their story. God knows exactly what we are and what we'll be and selects us for his purpose. like building a house with different materials and God uses different kinds of people in different positions and, and, and allows some to grow in power 
whether good or evil, and allows some to suffer and, and, and struggle, whether good or evil. Verse 14, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. To Moses he stressed his mercy. In verse 16, so then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. It is neither unjust uh, either to show mercy to the undeserving or to harden those who harden themselves. Pharaoh already had a heart against God. Who is this God, he said. I don't know him. He already had a heart against God. God raised him up in power so he could show his power to the whole world. Verse 18, he shows mercy. So then he shows mercy to those he wants to and hardens those he wants to harden. The Bible talks about uh, God giving people up to a reprobate mind. Just letting them believe whatever they want to believe. That's scary. A lot of people have have thought, well, I know I should uh, surrender to God and 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 stop the sin business, but now is not the right time. I'll do it later. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it later on. It's not a good time right now. And and months turn to years, and years turns to decades. And they've completely forgotten. Verse 19, you'll say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God allows us to sin, why does he find fault with us? Is it, is it fair for God to hold us accountable to Him when He makes the decisions? To this, Paul makes three separate responses, all of which concern who God is. You see, most of our problems arise and seem, and seem impossible because our image of God is distorted. God is not unjust. In fact, as Paul demonstrated in the early chapters of this letter, 
uh, that all human beings are sinful and guilty in God's sight so that nobody deserves to be saved. If therefore God hardens some, he is not being unjust, for that's what their sin deserves. If on the other hand he has compassion on some, he is not being unjust, for he is dealing with them in mercy. The wonder is not that some are saved and others not, but that anybody is saved at all. Verse 19 again, when does he, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then he, uh, verse 20, but who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor, another for dishonor? God has, as a potter has a right over his clay to do what he wills, God has a right to do with what he wills. When we, when we, when we ask why, we, are, we realize that we are putting God on the defense. We're insisting God explain himself. And God is not in the business of explaining himself. Now, I want to point out that Paul is not censoring someone who asks sincerely perplexed questions. God is never that way with someone who's asking honest questions. There have been times in my life and, and our situation would arise and I had no idea what was going on. It did not make sense to me whatsoever. And I say, God, I don't understand why you're allowing this, but I trust you. I know that you have my best interest at heart, so whatever happens, I'm along for the ride. Amen? Now, we're not talking about someone who uh, is asking serious, sincere questions. We're talking about somebody who quarrels with God. Talks back or answers back in a disrespectful, rebellious spirit. A refusal to let God be God and acknowledge his or her true status as a creature of God, as the one made. So many people stand in judgment of God, stand in judgment of God's word. It's amazing. 
It is nowhere suggested that God has has it is nowhere suggested that God has the right to create sinful beings in order to punish them. God doesn't do that. I had one guy tell me basically that that well, you know, if I'm I, I am in, I am sinning and I'm doing things I know is wrong, but but you know God's allowing it, so that was his thought. Rather, God has the right to deal with sinful beings according to his good pleasure. Either to pardon or punish them. See, God doesn't arbitrarily decide who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. In fact, the Bible says, makes it very clear, God says, whosoever will. Verses I learned as a kid. I was I was four and a half years old. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever is anyone, whosoever is you, whosoever is me, God doesn't want anybody to perish. And anything outside of our own decision for Christ and obedience to Him, anything that God's involved in outside that is not our business. Wrapping up, continuing on here. Verse 20, I already did that one. Um, Verse 22, And what if God desired to display His wrath and to make His power known, endure with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction? Kind of like what He did with Pharaoh, right? But God didn't make Pharaoh wicked. He just allowed Pharaoh to to do what he really wanted to do. Gave him up to a reprobate mind. Verse 23, And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy he prepared beforehand for glory? On us the ones he also called not only from the Jews but also the Gentiles. Also he says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and he who who is unloved, beloved. And it will be the place where they were told, you are not my people, where they be called the sons of the living God. 
But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So here Hosea predicts that Gentiles will come to Christ. Gentiles will serve the, the true and living God. And Isaiah predicts only a small number of Israel will be saved. And, and continues on with Isaiah's prediction that, that if God had not blessed them, the special blessing to preserve them, they would have been wiped out. They would have been gone. Is, it, Israel is the only, the only culture in human history that went for a long period of time without a homeland and still survived. No other culture that has happened. They've always disappeared once their homeland was gone. What happened? God preserved them. Verse 30. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law for righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, it, but as if it were by works. They were trying to earn their way to heaven. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, yet the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. That same stone. Bible says if, if we rest on that stone, it will be the cornerstone of the house of our life. That stone is Jesus. And if you, if you reject that stone and try to walk past the stone, you're going to trip on it and fall to your own destruction. God's in control. And sometimes it, you, you, we wonder... Well, that's all for today. We certainly hope it was a blessing to you. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email us at servantsheartchapel at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can go to servantsheartchapel.org. Have a wonderful day.